This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is having a ball this corporate governance season. Tell you what, there's been some headlines. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, Dr. Nirban Mahati. How are you, Doc? I'm very good, Captain. How are you? My, my, I'm excellent. My voice is a bit, I'm just informing a prior. My voice is a bit off. A bit off? So mm-hmm. if, if the audio signal is bad, it's not uh, producer Will Porter's fault. It's actually... But uh, it's never his fault. No, no. Never my fault. Never it's fault. never his fault. It's totally your fault, Doc. <laughs> uh, I, the good thing is I get out of it, which is nice. Uh, For a we, change. When was the last time we didn't start this podcast with a tangent, mate? I don't know. <laughs> it's always your fault. <laughs> you just pick up a tangent. It, yeah, Will's nodding. Thank no, you, Will's mate. Nodding. I appreciate it. Seriously, it's a G up. Uh, <laughs> two against one is never a good idea. Mate, this week we've got a lot on the podcast, so let's get on with it. We're going to talk about, I mentioned corporate governance. Westpac has <laughs> swung the knife and swung the, what is it? The sword swung the something. Uh, guillotine's been dropped. Insert your favorite uh, death metaphor here. The CEO gone, the chairman gone eventually. Maybe the chair of the audit risk committee gone. Still the super funds out there trying to just you know make a few changes. So we'll see what's going to happen there. Speaking of which, speaking of corporate governance, Cherry Harvey sat through a well, not exactly sat through, yelled through a reasonably aggressive AGM with, uh, air quotes, shareholder activists, close quotes, Stephen Main out there trying to get himself on the board and some proxy advisors agreeing with him. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about the, uh, mate, the ASX is at record highs and yesterday Telstra up 4%. Is it time to break out the champagne pre-Christmas? And as always, we'll dip into the Motley Fool mailbag, our favourite and uh, spoiler alert, mate. One of our correspondents actually said it was his favourite as well. So for all the stuff we do with the rest of the show, doesn't care. Just wants to hear the mailbag. That's good. I love him. This is great. They're supposed to like what we do, like the stuff we talk about, like our, our value and insights. Yeah, we are talking in the mailbag. They're just asking the questions, right? <laughs> so, so, so what they're saying is they don't like our topics. They like their topics. Exactly. They ask the intelligent questions and then <laughs> we kind of come up with semi-intelligent and, answers. And my question's less intelligent. Is that what you're saying? But you don't put questions, you know. You're not making up questions. You, you, I ask you questions right through the news section. No, we are slaves of the news. <laughs> so the problem really is that the news is kind of not that good. I, okay, I like that. You've got me off the hook. Thank you, mate. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. So let's get into this. Mate, we can't not talk about Westpac. Now, we did mention Westpac a little bit last week. Things got worse pretty quickly this week for Ex, now ex-CEO Brian Hartzer for Chair Lindsay Maxed and potentially some of the rest of the board. The PM was out there, I think we mentioned last week, the Treasurer was out there having a go. Uh, plenty of institutional investors, the so-called big end of town was out there as well. They finally got their scalp. Uh, Hartzer gone, Maxed going. Hester, the I think it's Health Employees Superannuation from memory, um, they want even more change at the Westpac board. I mean, how do you, I mean, I've got some thoughts on this, but what do you make of the Westpac palaver? I mean, we know that obviously 23 million breaches is terrible. We know that the potential for this money to have been used allegedly, and we should say allegedly right through this as I did last week. Um, allegedly, we had some issues with money potentially going to child exploitation activities, maybe even funding terrorism. No one's going to argue this wasn't a complete stuff up to tidy up what I was going to otherwise say to keep this PG. Um, I mean... No one's going to no one's going to be you know exactly saying that Westpac don't deserve something. But is this the right result? Is this the right treatment of the executives? Is this the right approach for shareholders? Oh boy, where do I start? This at the is very the, beginning, as very uh, beginning. Julie Andrews saying. <laughs> at the very beginning, I have a lot of uh, you know. I'll try to unpack going <laughs> level one, two, three. There's so a lot going look, on, right? Yeah, a lot going on. So uh, first, first it looks like you know the C. It, it's interesting name of company, right? Westpac. So the CEO is now packing their bags going west, probably. <laughs> so that sounds interesting. I like it. Um, you reckon he asked for it when he joined the company in the first place? Yeah. With a name like that. <laughs> yeah. So second, I think it is really telling when um, the prime minister. Uh, on my favorite treasurer, um, <laughs> they have nothing better to do but to comment on one publicly listed co- company. I, I think that is really telling of the state of many things, right? Oh, mate, I've got to jump in here, though. I mean, this is matter from heaven for a politician. If you get to jump on the outrage train and point your finger at someone else for a change, isn't it? Isn't this politics 101? Yeah, but it is. But, I mean, you know, it's like one publicly listed company. I mean, you know, it's one <laughs> bank, right? I mean, okay, it's a big bank, but that's maybe that's where the problem is, right? I mean, mate, you the- know, everybody is so... <laughs> 
<laughs> like, I mean, the super fans are like, oh, what's happening? Oh, yeah. the PM's going, oh, there's fire burning, but the PM probably wants to talk about this because well, that's it. Because you can't douse the fire. SCOMO's PR guys woken up that morning and going, oh, thank God, we can talk about something else. Yeah. I'm going to get myself out of some trouble here. Don't worry about Angus Taylor. Don't worry about the fires. Don't worry about the climate. Yeah. You know what we're going to do? We, talk about Westpac. We're going we're we're to pile on the poor or a Westpac CEO. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. So, so I mean, I think, you know, and the super funds, you know, with all their might out there, you know, talking about, oh, we got to clean this thing. And, you know, mm. I'm not trying to make light of what has happened. I think Westpac has made a lot of blunders. You know, yeah. I don't think they did this on purpose. They just didn't have the systems. Oh, it's right? unquestionably crap. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they have crappy systems and they had like, you know, a lot of this. You know, part of the thing that I was reading is that they have this. <laughs> it's funny how sm problems happen because of small reasons, right? They yeah. need to change collect the data, change it in a particular format, then send it to all, you know, Austrack, and somehow they forgot to change some of the data into the correct format yeah. so that the Austrack computers can analyze it, right? So, I mean, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's, it's a big problem. But, you know, I, I feel a bit bad. Uh, I shouldn't feel bad for people who make millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> but He's going to be okay. <clears throat> he's going to be fine. Uh, but, you know, I just feel a bit bad that everybody's piling on. And I think this is, this is more of a systemic problem because, you know, the super funds are piling on because, hey, they're heavily invested in banks. Hey, hello, go invest somewhere else, right? <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of other places you can invest other than just being invested in the banks, right? Then they've got this, uh, you know, you know, super funds are also vested interests here, right? I'm vested interest because we want to do something, but we can't hit the hammer too hard because, hey, it's going to create problems for our returns, right? So, Do you think in part they're looking at the share price falling and going, hey, we can just, because we're so invested in Westpac as a proportion of our total portfolio, we can get the price up about 5% by pushing the CEO out and in short order, that's in our interest to do so? Yeah, you know, I'm, not, I'm not alleging that, but I think there's, there's, a, there's, right. there's this bit about, you know, we can't, we can't penalize the entire board or we can't penalize, you know, ma management. I mean, first of all, it's really stupid to do that because, I mean, is, is really the board, this is like a, it's an organization cultural problem, right? This is a problem right. that has probably been there for like ages. Oh, it's got to be two or three CEOs. Two or three CEOs, right? So, you know, who, who are you penalizing, right? And then if you're penalizing right now, um, you, you're trying to strike this balance with, oh, I don't want it to be too hard because it's going to make our returns suck. Yeah. Uh, Excuse my bad words, but you know, oh, it's, it's good, it's, man. I say worse. Uh, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's all of these those things. I think you know, mm. I think the uh, the super funds being overly vested in it, the you know, the PM being vested in it for whatever reason, mm -hmm. and the I, I think those are bigger issues in my mind than you know, like what's happening with Austrac because this this thing, you know, th there are other banks who have had similar issues as well. Right. Um, well, CBA famously there was God knows how many ATM transactions that were unreported. This is the this is just the latest in a long line. Uh, we saw the headlines this morning. BOQ is going to be apparently hauled in front of a a parliamentary committee to committee, explain yeah. their uh, treatment or otherwise of, of some of the same types of transactions. And we're not alleging there's anything wrong, or certainly that the money's going to anything like what Westpac was. That that's a different conversation. But you know, this is the hot topic of the day, right? This is this hot topic of the day. But, but I think you know, it, this is this to me means more of a cultural issue. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a sector sector wide. Um, yeah. a cultural problem that needs to be addressed. You know, they need better checks and balances, better systems. And yeah, I mean... Uh, here's, here's the question I'd put to the board, mate, or to the, to, not to the board, to the investors who are, and, and frankly, the PM, if he was... Yeah, I'm sure he listens. So, Scott, you're listening. Thank you. Uh, thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to listen to Motley for Money. Uh, I, I'm going to say to those investors, guys, what do you think you achieve by ditching the CEO that you wouldn't have achieved if he'd stayed? Like fundamentally, nothing. But, well, that's my that's <laughs> yeah. my point, right? Yeah. Like, if he was the best guy to run the bank, so let's 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 assume that the, the 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 board did a great job of finding the best possible guy to run the bank. Now, let's assume that's true, and then something happens that was already, as you said, in place probably three, five, seven, ten years ago, and as you also say, of the trillions of lines of code, I'm going to make that number up. But assume there's trillions of lines of code in in all of the bank systems. One of the processes was a little bit off. That's absolutely inexcusable, but it's a very small part of a very complex business. It, it's not like, you know, if Hartzell was still there now, he'd fix the problem. If Hartzell's replaced by someone else, they fix the problem. This feels like a very, very, it feels like they're giving into the baying mob, right? There was the, you know, yeah. the, the pitchforks are out. And so they've gone, well, I, this, this is kind of crap. We feel a bit bad. People are whinging. If we just give them hearts, I just throw hearts over the side. Yeah. And everyone will stop complaining as opposed to genuinely in the interest of shareholders, there is a better person to run the bank. Yeah, it's, it's like, look, look, he's he's definitely the sacrificial lamb here. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's it you know... Say, it doesn't say much for, for the quality of... 
corporate governance overall. Or, or yeah. even well that, but also also the the decisions of investors. I mean, if if we are that uh, knee jerk responsive, if the big super funds, the big institutional investors are, are thinking the same thing, i.e., let's just get rid of Harta to try and be a circuit breaker here, rather than genuinely who is the best person to fix this problem and lead the bank into the future. I just don't know how they th- how they're thinking. Yeah, the only thing I can say here is that you know the, the Westpac did a big capital raise, right? So an institutional <laughs> yes, and 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 a retail, which is uh, in a bit of a question mark right now. Yep. I mean, the I think the issue here would be that they had known about this for what fifteen months, yeah, and they did the raise without really bringing this issue to the forefront, right? So I mean, some of these people who have actually participated in this raise, which. I can go and talk about that raise too. I mean, this is basically another example of, you know, I need to pay you dividends, so I'm going to raise some money and pay you back. <laughs> so it's as, a, yep. as a, all these people who are investors basically saying, hey, here, take my money, <laughs> give it back to me, attach some franking credits. This is like the most ridiculous thing I can ever see. Like, I just don't get it. Um, but putting that aside, you know, some of these people, people probably feel cheated. You know, you're buying these shares, you should feel cheated because, you know, you probably made a bad decision in the first place. Uh, so I don't feel bad for these guys. Um, but yeah, like, I, th- I think, again, you know, my solution would be keep the guy, ask him to fix the problem, take away his bonus, you know, cut his bonus to like right, zero, right. right? Maybe penalize his salary. Like, you know, don't give him salary for like three months yeah, <laughs> and yeah. ask him to fix the problem. Yeah. And 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 the guy, if he was the best guy to run the bank and was selected for that reason, let him do the job, clean up the rubbish, and then, you know, you find the next guy to run the place. That's my solution. Couldn't disagree. Stand by. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Brian Hartzer, we've kind of alluded to Lindsay Max did the chair. The big question now for you, for me, and for everyone listening is, with Westpac at 10, 11 times earnings, is it cheap enough to buy? Is this exactly the right time with everyone, you know, running around like their heads cut off with with investors seemingly responding with knee-jerk reactions to something that is probably a one-off or at least can be fixed, some would say this is exactly the right time to go and buy Westpac shares while they're going cheap. What do you reckon? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I'm not a bank investor. Um, yet. Uh, yet. <laughs> but I, I did a... Maybe after I, the show. I, I, did a bit of a, uh, well, I did a bit of a checking around to, you know, so CBS shares are at about 17 times. That's a lot of money uh, for a bank, dude. Yeah, that's a lot of money for a bank, which is really not growing. Um, on the other hand, Westpac is at 12 times earnings, mm-hmm. trailing. Now, what the, the problem with any scandal is that we don't know what else is there in the skeleton? <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> you know, what else is hiding in that cupboard? So, is yeah, there yeah. are there other stuff? And then there's you know, some people have raised issues about you know, if the fine is too big, do they have the capital to actually pay? So, do they need to raise for the money? Is how dilutive is that going to be? Right. Et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, like <clears throat> somewhere around the 10, 12 PE mark, a bank looks decently attractive. That's what I, I expect to pay for a bank. Actually, on a, another way to think about banks is to think about the book value of the bank, right? So this is basically the assets that the bank has. Yes. Um, um, and in this case, the book value is about 1.2, I think, when I last checked. Okay. 1.2 times? 1.2 times book value, yep. which which is pretty decent price to pay for a bank. Yep. Uh, it's another way to think about bank. Whereas, you know, you could buy CBA for 2.4 times or something like that. Okay. Or, you know, so, I mean... Makes Westpac sound pretty cheap, mate. You, you had yes. their buying? Well, well, there's always better ideas out there than buying a bank. So, I mean, you know, I'm not really... A, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> you know, like, here's the thing. This is like, I don't think of any of these banks or any any really slow-moving uh, big company mm. which really doesn't have a growth future f- at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not making a case for investment here at all, but I know. You know, like, I mean, if you if you, if you you can time it, you know, you want to buy probably at the low P's, as you're suggesting, and then, yeah. you know, at some day... Eventually, it'll probably get, you know, back to like a 15p, you sell it. Hopefully, the earnings are growing, 15 or 16, uh, or at least steady. And in the meantime, you have, you know, banked some dividends, you know, you can make some decent return out of it. Is that the best way to make returns? Probably not. Um, You know, there are plenty of, you know, beautiful growth ideas with (laughs) long-term tailwinds that you can go for. But yeah, if you want some, you know, I mean... Yeah. On if you really wanted to own a bank, I mean, right now, Westpac does look um, much more interesting than any of the other guys. That's my thoughts. I don't know what you think. You know, I tend to agree, Matt. I made the point to you guys on Skype this morning before we recorded this. We're recording on Friday morning. Um, that I, 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 I had a guess, and I haven't done the work, and there's no research here, and I'm not suggesting this is an investment strategy for anyone out there because I haven't done the work, and I don't know whether it's true. But I do wonder at some level whether or not 
there is some sense. I mean, the banks are an oligopoly. They're going to move roughly in lockstep with each other, right? If credit growth is 3%, they're all going to grow their credit between 2 and 4 Like, it's just, there's no one taking heaps of market share from anybody else. They own the market. They control the market. Um, where the market goes, go the banks roughly in lockstep. I just can't imagine a scenario where these guys operate meaningfully differently from each other. And so if you think about that and think, well, if CBA and Westpac are kind of, you know, peas in a pod, paying 12 times one and 17 times the other doesn't make no sense to me at all. Now, maybe CBA is just expensive and Westpac is reasonably priced, in which case you're not necessarily going to get a great return from Westpac. But I do wonder, and look, you know, it wasn't that long ago, NAB was trading at 10 times earnings either, by the way. And I do wonder whether the, the, the trade in the banks, if you're going to, is frankly, is to buy the cheapest one and then kind of rotate every X months, six months, 12 months, two years, whatever it is, out of the one that's gone from cheap to reasonably priced, then go back into the cheapest of the big four banks. If you are a bank investor, I dare say it's possibly, as long as you've got the stomach for it, the best way to, to be maximizing your returns from the banking sector. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think that, that could be a strategy. If we're agreeing, mate, we've got to go move on. This is not comfortable at all. Mm-mm. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I just mentioned agreeing. Speaking of agreeing or disagreeing, Jerry Harvey and Stephen Main at the Harvey Norman AGM was about the most and biggest, broadest, scariest fireworks we've seen in an AGM in a very, very long time. Jerry Harvey did ask uh, and then answered for himself the question, are you a sexual predator? And then he said, no, he's not, or at least he's not admitting it. Um, that's that's reasonably aggressive kind of line of, of rhetorical questioning and, and probably not miles away from defamation. Um, Jerry Harvey is a is an iconoclast. He's a uh, <laughs> choose your choose your word. Um, he's a rebel. He's someone who doesn't necessarily play by the rules of uh, the way corporate Australia likes to do its business. That being said, that's how he's built Harvey Norman to be such a category killer retailer as a business. Forty odd years of success there. Uh, he's always been his own man. He's always had his own style, much to his own drum. Plenty of people getting a little bit less comfortable these days about that. And there is some concern. Maybe the board's not independent enough. Maybe they need some outside um, influence. Maybe they need a bit more transparency in their accounts. So Stephen Main, who uh, founded Crikey, is a known, as I said before, air quotes, shareholder activist. He stood for about 40 different boards. He's yet to be elected, uh, but doesn't stop him standing for board seats. This time, though, a few of the big proxy advisors were behind him saying they kind of agree that they'd like some board renewal, they'd like a bit more transparency, they'd like Harvey Norman run a bit more, I won't say traditionally, but a bit more like the best practice that advisors are suggesting ASX boards should be run uh, by or under. Jerry, of course, in the usual Jerry Harvey way saying, get stuffed, if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. I have a little bit of sympathy for that view, I have to say, mate. I, I, I'm... I had an exchange on Twitter. I'm absolutely not saying in any way, shape, or form that Harvey Norman should be, uh, you know, should not be subject to the same laws as everybody else, the same regulations as everybody else. My issue, I think, comes down to whether or not the corporate governance guys are actually right in the first place. I mean, independence is important to some degree, but gee, I mean, Jerry Harvey owns half the shares. His mates own most of the rest. Uh, I, I mean, you know, it doesn't get much more aligned than a bloke who owns a majority or a significant minority of the company. He's doing things that he benefits from or loses because of. Um, it may not be traditional. It may not be kind of the, the the so-called gold standard. But I wonder whether you want to have the guy with almost half the business running it or some professional board directors who are on six other boards, get paid 150 grand a year and don't own any shares. I, I'm, I'm just not entirely sure whether the corporate governance rules themselves are right and whether Jerry's not maybe in, in his iconoclastic way a better example of what we should want from board directors, from chairs, from CEOs. Uh, his wife, Katie Page, is the CEO, by the way. Um, if that's not a better example than maybe what the so-called experts are suggesting. Yeah, I, I hate to agree with you again. <laughs> <laughs> but Come here, on, you've got to be able to disagree with me somewhere. You know, I mean, I mean, here's the thing, right? Those people who are coming out and, you know, again, Harvey, you know, Jerry Harvey has a lot of money. He's rich, famous, and he doesn't need my support. And, and I'm, <laughs> he really doesn't. Maybe he's does, listening, though. Maybe he and Scamo are listening together. Maybe they're listening together. So, so here's, I, my, here's my picture. I'm going to interrupt you. In my head, I have a picture of Jerry and Scomo. They're yeah. sitting next to each other, just reasonably close. 
They're sharing earbuds. One of them's got the left one, one's got the right one. They're sitting there together listening to the Motley Fool Money podcast. What do you reckon? That could be true. And maybe, you know, Josh is going to take a picture and tweet it. Um, <laughs> there we go. G'day, uh, guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you. And, uh, you know, like, you know, here's the thing. I would not go and buy Harvey Norman shares, but that's got nothing to do with uh, how Jerry's running the company. A- right. Absolutely nothing. Because... He's he's absolutely right to say that. You know, here's the thing, other way to think of it, right? Right? These these proxy advisors. I mean, how many businesses have they actually gen- created? Yeah. How many businesses they have actually run? And how many of these professional board people uh, that we know have actually positively contributed anything? Right? I mean, you know, a lot of these, a lot of professional board people basically go and sit on boards, tick some boxes, and earn good money. I, I cast no aspersions, mate, but I'm reminded that Westpac and CBA both have a whole lot of professional directors. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> professional directors, very, I'm very sure they're wonderful people and, and very thoughtful oh, and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, but, but it's, yeah. It didn't exactly solve the problem, did it? Yeah, some problems are not solved that way. And and I, I think, you know, those people who want whatever else they want, sell those shares. Yeah. There's a whole heap, big market, you know, uh, Harvey Norman is only a small portion of the ASX. Right. Buy something else. Buy Westpac. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? Well, that's not an advice or anything, but I'm just <laughs> I'm saying, I'm going to quote you, know, you on that, mate. You've just said buy Westpac straight out. <laughs> oh, I I'm going to snip that out of the podcast. If, if, if you really don't, <laughs> if you really dislike Katie Page right. and, and you really can't stand Jerry Harvey, yep. you know, and don't like the involvement of the, uh, you know, Harvey and Norman families, yep. well, good. Sell your stock. It does make me wonder, like, what the proxy advisors are hoping to achieve. Like, let's say you get an independent director. Let's say you get rid of Harvey, Jerry Harvey or you reduce his control on the business. Who actually thinks Harvey Norman is being badly run? Like, it, it's not as successful as it has been, but that's largely a story of of retail, the retail environment generally, right? I mean, there's plenty of others going broke while Harvey Norman's making effectively, I think, record profits or at least good profits. Uh, it's not exactly like you're going to get rid of Jerry Harvey, put in a, air quotes, professional manager and get all of a sudden better results, are you? You can't, right? I mean, you know, uh, Harvey Norman is there pretty much in every suburb, every mm. corner, right? I mean, how much growth can you get? Your growth, yeah, your growth is going to basically right. be based on population growth, which right. is whatever it is, right? You know, 2% or whatever it is, is you're going to get. I mean, it's really, and if he's getting more than that, like that is already pretty darn good, right? And yeah, so I, I don't know what people are, you know, trying to, people are just probably pissed off that there's one guy here, you know, who just doesn't want to talk the book. That's what and, it feels like. It yeah. feels like there's, it's a, an it's ideological like a battle rather than a, rather than a genuine. I, I saw a great quote and I, I wish I could name, I think it was a fund manager or an analyst and I, I apologize for not being able to name him, but it was in the, uh, in the SMH, I think in Elizabeth Knight's column during the week, who said, it's like people who move in next door to a noisy pub and then complain that there's a noisy pub next door. Yeah. It's like you bought Harvey. Jerry's been running the business for 40 years. Everybody, by definition, has bought shares after Jerry started running the business. Yeah. It's not like you didn't know who Jerry Harvey was. He's not exactly changed. He's not gone from a mild-mannered, quiet, you know, professional executive to all of a sudden this bombastic, iconoclastic CEO and chair. He, he Jerry's been Jerry for as long as I've been around. Yeah. It, I, I do wonder, what, you know, what are you trying to do if you say, well... Okay, I've, I own Harvey Norman Shares, so I think it's a great business. In theory, that's because you think the business is worth owning and because you think management aren't going to screw it up. Otherwise, why own the shares? Just to, to try and go in there and say, I'm going to go and force change to somehow improve the business in some other way other than what Jerry thinks is best for his own shareholding, let alone the company, boggles my mind. Mate. Again, I'm absolutely all for everyone must obey the law. Everyone must follow the rules and regulations. In this case, I just think, I mean, I made the I used the example during the week. Warren Buffett is allegedly in breach of best practice corporate governance because he's the CEO and the chairman, and those roles should be separate. Now I don't know anyone who thinks Buffett is not the best guy to run Berkshire Hathaway. It just it boggles the mind that someone would say, you know what, we should put in there. We should find a, a director from the directors club, pay him one hundred and fifty grand, put them, make them chair of Berkshire. And that, that'll fix the business. That'll, that'll be a much better business as a result. Yeah, it's, it's just a crazy idea. It's just a crazy idea. Yeah, again, I think you know. Um, yeah, follow the rules. Have you know have the disclosure practices that are expected of a publicly listed company. Right, right. You know, uh, provide uh, enough color, as people say, <laughs> during you know oh, meetings dear. with analysts or whatever it is. You know, just provide the information. I mean, you know, and then people can make the decision as to whether they want to own the stock or not. I mean, just you know. This is like a picketing, right? I'm going to pick it in front of the uh, <laughs> exactly. of the AGM with this board. I know yeah, Jerry yeah. Harvey. I need an independent chairman. I mean, no, yeah. I can't. Yeah, I, I can never get behind that. Yeah, I didn't say buy the stock, but you know, you said buy Westpac. Well, I said if you don't like, you know, Harvey Norman, go buy Westpac. Well, you, you know, don't like Harvey Norman. Therefore, it's, you got buy indep- it's got an independent chair. It's going to have a new independent chair soon exactly. and a new, new CEO. CEO. Yeah. You like that? Go buy that. <laughs> Doc says buy Westpac. Yeah. 
Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. Speaking of buying Westpac, as I struggle to try and draw a tangent or, or a seg between the two, David Scott in the SMH this morning, again, we're recording this on Friday morning, had an article entitled ASX closed at record highs, Telstra soars 4%. That's a that's an unusual headline for <laughs> in both cases. I will say too, I did some numbers this morning. I, I don't do much research for the show, as our listeners would know by now. But for a separate piece of work, I was doing some research. How much do you reckon the ASX is up since December 21 last year? Just to put you on the spot for fun. If I had to say, including dividends, how much is the ASX up since December 21 last year? Oh, it's up a lot. So I'm going to guess about December 21? December 21. Probably about 22%. Not miles off. Not super close. Go again. Add a couple and try again for me. Add. Add a couple. More than a couple. 24. Keep going. 26. Keep going. 30. 30.88%. That is ridiculous. ASX is up. That's the equivalent of, depending on how you do the numbers, affect at least three years' gains, probably mm. four based on the most recent averages. The ASX is up 31%. <coughs> excuse me, I say cough. In less than a year. So, hence the record highs, of course, in some degree. But that is a phenomenal result. Now, as I wrote today, that was... In spite of the US-China trade war, in spite of record house prices, in spite of sluggish GDP growth, of sluggish unemployment or underemployment, um, China's not exactly on the on our roll. And the market's up 31%. Now, that's a reminder, by the way, for people not to use headlines to make investment decisions, because if you just simply ignored the newspapers and bought shares on December 21 or 28 or 30 or January 15, you would have made a lot of money this year. That's a phenomenal, phenomenal gain. I have to ask you though, mate, ASX at record highs, 31% gains, even Telstra is up 4%, one of your favorite stocks. Um, I should own, should disclaim, I do own Telstra and I own Berkshire that we talked about before. Um, what do you make of where the market's at? Yeah, so the market is enjoying easy money. Um, is is my, Well, here's my thing, right? Let me start with my favorite company, Telstra. Okay. Um, Telstra's PE, I just checked, well, assuming this is correct. It's 21 times. Here's a company that's going backwards in earnings, probably has got very little growth, substantial be, growth in the kind, future. It is at 21 times <laughs> earnings. Probably oh, should man. be selling at 13 times, 12 times earnings. <laughs> so I'm going to say sell Telstra is my next call. I don't know anything <laughs> about this. You know, I've said buy there's, Westpac. There's, and, there's your pairs. Trade buy Westpac, yeah, sell, buy, Telstra. sell Telstra. I okay. mean, uh, a lot, I, I'm going to say this, a lot of the big companies on the ASX, and ASX has got a lot of, ASX is a very heavyweight type of um, yeah. uh, market, right? Um, so super got concentrated. Super concentrated. You have CBN one hand at 17, 18 times earnings. <laughs> You've got uh, Telstra at another hand at 21 times earnings. Mate, what do you reckon Woolies PE is? Probably 30 times. Like 29 times yeah. earnings. So you've got these companies that have basically got very little growth, which have got very high PEs. Um, yeah. I, <laughs> I just sell Willies as well. Um, uh, you reckon up the list of recommendations here. I'll have to start <laughs> keeping a book. Um, but but yeah. So I mean, the SX obviously the SX is up because all these companies have expanded their PE like crazy. Yeah. Of course, their futures have not expanded like crazy. So I would say, if I had to make it, if I was a betting man, I'd say that actually the, the in the. The ASX, when I yeah. talk about the ASX All Ordinary, which is basically all of these big companies, yep. it's probably going nowhere. <laughs> okay. In 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 the next say year or two. It's right? not exactly uh, overwhelmingly positive for our listeners, mate. Well, so if the ASX is going nowhere, what do we do? Oh, but you, but you don't have to invest nah. in the those companies. Like you know, as I said, sell sell Telstra. You know, you know. So it sounds like you're saying don't invest in the ASX. What you're really saying is. Don't invest in market weight big companies. Yeah, exactly. So you, if you, you don't want to invest in these big companies that have got little growth mm-hmm. or no growth or negative growth and are selling at record high PEs, um, now you could justify some of that by the fact that you know maybe our interest rates are going to go even further lower and there's going to be cheap money and there's going to be uh, what money printing and then negative interest rates and right. you know although RBA has said those things are not happening, um, but <laughs> who knows? Um, yeah, I, I mean you know there's a way to you know find companies that are not part of the ASX 200 or at, at least out of the ASX 50 that you would find 
where you can find companies that are nimble, which are smaller, which are growing, which have earnings. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, those, in my opinion, are is where you want to be. Um, the ASX as a whole, I think, when you think of these big banks and these big, you know, the Telstra's and the Coles and the... Um, Woolies. Woolies, yeah. Th- those, those really, I mean, you know, it, 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 it looks like, you know, they're fully baked. Yeah. We have... We have- occasionally listeners who write to us and ask about using margin loans for buying stocks. I'm just going to quickly, just, just for the fun of it, I've just pulled up Woolworths Quotes page on the Commonwealth Bank or Comsec Apple or website. This is a company with a market capitalization of literally this morning, 50.007 billion. So I've just ticked over the $50 billion mark. It grew earnings at 4.7% last year. And yet, sorry, and the dividend yield of 2.6%. So dividend of 2.6, growing at five. I'll round it up because I'm kind. With a P of 29 times earnings, there is no basis on God's green earth for those numbers to be real. Either Woolworths is going to grow its earnings meaningfully somehow next year, much faster than it did last year. And that's possible, I suppose. Maybe there's a big a bull case out there. That being said, I just think it's a remarkably difficult case to make. And sorry, and on top of that, to my point about margin lending, Comsec will lend you 75% of the purchase price of all these shares, right? Now, that's not unreasonable. And, and they will say that's only a margin in the LVR as long as you buy more than one stock. And I'm not, no one no one should ever, ever, ever just borrow for one stock in a diversified portfolio. Shouldn't borrow anyway, by the way. But if you're going to, for the love of God, please don't do it on one stock. But that being said, if you're paying 29 times earnings for Woolies and you got, you're borrowing 75% of it, that's, that is $3 of it every four is borrowed, not much has to change if you get your equity wiped out, right? If that 28 PE goes to 24, 23? 15? You, well, but no, so what I mean, if it, 24, 23, you pretty much now lost all your equity. Yeah. If it goes to 15, you're in the hole for about a third of what you borrowed. I mean, that's, yeah. again, I, I don't want to pick on Woolies particularly. I don't want to pick on Commonwealth Bank particularly. But I mean, I'll tell you, well, this is the problem, right? Like, I, Woolies is, you know, there are, there are some, as you say, smaller growing quality companies with no lending or an OER of 40%. Yeah, Woolies will lend you 75% of the purchase price just because Woolies is big, just because it's an alleged blue chip. I used to work for Woolies. I used to own Woolies once upon a time. I like the business. Like we shop there, all that kind of good stuff. Just paying 29 times earning for Woolies is bad enough. If you're borrowing to do it, you're absolutely asking for massive amounts of trouble. Please, for the love of God, don't borrow at all. And certainly don't borrow to buy Woolies shares. I'm going to give uh, a last few, a couple of stats, because I just pulled this out of uh, Capital IQ. More research. Mate, we are, we are we bringing are, the data we are actually, today. We are doing a research on the fly, <laughs> on the show. We've done more and, research and, for this and, podcast and, and, than we have and this all is, uh, This is, uh, this is uh, a toolkit that is provided <laughs> to us by um, the S&P, um, global market intelligence. Indeed. Uh, courtesy so, of the Motley Fool. Courtesy of the Motley Fool. So here's the thing. 12 months ended June 2015. Yes. 2015, okay. 2015. Woolies revenue was, can you oh, guess how much? Dude, uh, okay, I'm going to have a guess. I'm going to say $50 billion. Okay, okay, around about $59 billion. Oh, that was pretty close considering. Okay. Given you asked me a raw number, go on. Okay. 12 months ended June 30th, 2019. How much is Woolies so revenue? Four years later. Yeah. So four years ago, it was $59 billion. Mm-hmm. This year, I'm going to say $62 billion. It is $59.98 <laughs> billion. Okay. Right. So, so that's less than 2% in four years for those playing. So it home. has gone nowhere in four years. Is rather, uh, that's how, in my world, this is basically dead. <laughs> okay. Now, the diluted earnings per share, and this, might, this number might oh, not... Oh, dude, you're bringing the audio. Yeah. This is, this is the... This is, this is the Earnings this per is what share we're number. Much research on this show. Go on. This is earnings per share. Earnings per share. Twenty fifteen. Four years ago. I'll give. I'll give you this number. All right. It was one dollar eighty three. According to S and P Capital IQ. Okay. Can you guess how much is the P? Well, you know the P E already, right? So I mean, you should be able to guess the diluted EPS right now. Okay. Twenty thirty times fifty dollars. Dollar seventy ish. Okay, according to Capital IQ, it's one dollar fourteen cents. The diluted dollar fourteen. Yeah, it's wow. actually gone backwards. It doesn't uh, quite line up with the Comsec numbers, but we're close enough among friends. Yeah. <laughs> so, so here's a company that's basically wow. not growing its revenue. Its earnings probably are declining, <laughs> and it. I can assure you, its revenue is going to be not much higher than uh, sixty billion in a couple of years from now. It's not the textbook case for paying thirty times earnings. Is it? it is. 
it's it's a it's a company I'd pay ten times earnings maybe <laughs> if I was to buy a little harsh I think but I take uh, the point ten to twelve you know like I mean this is like buying Walmart <laughs> right yeah it's a company that's not going to vanish it's going to pay you a dividend um, you know but it's just not going to grow look if there is a if there is a, so just to be fair only I have no no uh, no dog in this fight as you know to be fair to Woolies you know the the, the bull case would be something like this the business has been through some tough times Big W sucks Masters sucked. Um, they had to get rid of a whole lot of business. The, the the great thing and the terrible thing about being a very low margin business, they they literally bank probably four, three cents in the dollar, something like that, of all the sales they make. Like they keep almost nothing after tax and after costs. The good news there is if you take your margin from 3% to 4%, you actually grow your profit by 33%. Like that's meaningful, right? So there are ways in a very low margin business, if you can manage to sell for a little bit more, take a couple of costs out, you know, do something clever around efficiencies. It is possible. Woolies have been through this once before. Back in the, I want to say early '90s, they had Project Refresh, and they really, really fixed that business. They they changed the the quality of the the balance sheet and the profit and loss really meaningfully, and the shares jumped as a result. It was a really great time for Woolies. If you can do some of those things, you can really, really move the dial. Right? You can actually have sales not change at all, and still get a thirty percent growth in profit. Now, the flip side is if you have a three percent margin, and you go to 2% because not much needs to change. A little bit of you know price competition, as we know, with Woolies and Coles, Aldi coming into the market. Uh, maybe the store costs go up, rent goes up, staff costs go up. If 3% falls to 2%, you can lose a third of your profit as well. And these are really, really minute movements. So I can understand there might be a bull case for how Woolies might be able to, with a reasonably anemic level of sales growth, deliver some sort of earnings growth. I don't think it's particularly likely that, to be fair. I cannot understand how the there is any bull case, but okay, I would say sell Woolies <laughs> by Westpac again. Sell Woolies, sell Harvey Norman by Westpac. Is that where we're no, at? No, no, I don't know about Harvey Norman. But sell Tolstra. Uh, no, Harvey Norman is basically, anybody who hates <laughs> it right now should just sell it and buy Westpac. Not Woolies. I have, I have no views on, you know, I'm just I'm just, I'm just, just basically saying what, uh, you know, Jerry Harvey would say, you, know, you don't like my stock, just sell it, <laughs> right? And he'd probably buy it. But yeah, right now my another pair trade is, you know, uh, take it for whatever, with a lot of grain of salt and cheese and whatever else you want to put onto it. But I'd sell Woolies and buy Westpac. Salt, salt and cheese makes me think of grilled halloumi, which is making me hungry because there is nothing better than grilled halloumi. Well, it's just, you know, that's what I thought, salt and cheese. Oh, so good, so good. Should we move on? Yeah, a lot of tangents. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, our favorite part and our listeners' favorite part of the podcast, apparently, is our mailbag. So, cue non-existent sound effect. Here's me opening the mailbag. And I've got our first question from Boise. Boise, who has been a regular correspondent, has a, he says, new question. Now, Boise... In the past, you've said you like our podcast, and that's always nice, and we appreciate that. You're letting yourself down because you haven't said anything about the podcast this time. And, mate, we'll let this through once because you are someone who is a regular correspondent, so we'll just assume this is an oversight. But, mate, lift your act. We need some positive uh, reinforcement here. We have fragile egos, our listeners know. (laughs) Boise says, new question. What are your favorite investing-related podcasts, other than your own, which is, of course, the best? See, he saved himself, mate. Didn't start with the praise. He finished with the praise. Threw me off entirely. Boise, well done. Now, Doc, I did respond and said, what do you mean there are other podcasts? But uh, <laughs> apparently apparently there are other podcasts out there other than our own. I don't know how Boise's got time after listening to our podcast three or four times each podcast. I don't know how he's got time to listen to others, but apparently he must have a spare 15, 20 minutes. Somewhere. We should just produce another episode. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's right. That's Boise, should... the only thing better than our podcast is more of our podcast. Exactly. That's the answer. <laughs> we are going to work on producing a podcast for every day of the week. It... Next step. <laughs> Two episodes a day. Two episodes a day. The commute to and from work. Yeah, that's true. And uh, the traffic, traffic in Sydney is, traffic is, is, is awesome. Well, even, well I'm just assuming. Cities. Yeah, that's true. Maybe even in the country. Long, long drives in the country. That's true. There's some podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, Boise, despite me not understanding your question, we will give it a go. Doc, do you yes. have a favorite investing podcast or two other than, uh, assuming you finish listening to ours, although I don't know about you, I don't listen to our podcast. <laughs> so I have more time than our listeners do. What other podcast would you recommend? You know, I'd say listen to um, uh, our co founder, David Gardner's podcast. Ooh, called? Yeah, I actually forgot the name. Rule Breaker Rule Breakers Investing. Po- Rule Breakers Investing, yes. Yes. Google um, Rule Breaker Investing in your favorite podcast app and you'll find it. Yeah, and and that one is, uh, you know, you you you'd run about learn about a different style of investing, and a different approach to investing, 
and truly long-term, very, very long-term focused investing. So I, I think I find that very interesting. And, and my, then my only did, issue with that is he's a better podcast host than we are, and I worry that people will actually stop listening to us if they start listening to David. That is a small problem. There is a small problem. That's a small problem. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he, he, he's a, yeah, he's, he's a fabulous speaker. He is. Uh, much better than me. Um, well, much, much better than And by definition, <laughs> then much better than me. <laughs> well, I, I'm not casting any. <laughs> I, I think you're much better than me. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, yeah. Like, uh, but yeah, that's a he's really very good, good. Pro- He's yes. very, very good. And he covers a range of topics and he also interviews people. Um, yeah, so I, I find that interesting. Do yourself a favor. Once, once a week, uh, Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, very good. Yeah. Anything else? I think that we're going to be doing one, you know, once a week, right? Like yes. one, 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 one yeah, every day. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's it. Twice a day. Twice a day. Twice a day. Yeah. Uh, I will add a couple. Uh, so, for look, I'm I'm a fan of kind of first principles, thinking about investing in the economy and stocks and stuff. So some of the things that really explain the world in a nice way, I'll give you a couple. The first is planet money out of the US. Some of the stuff's not particularly relevant to the Australian market. Um, some of the stuff they talk about, they talk about jobs, you know, and that kind of stuff, jobs reports and stuff. It's not super relevant all the time, but for a really good, easy to understand, easy to listen to a money podcast or economics podcast, that's a good one. They also produce a daily one called The Indicator, which is less than 10 minutes worth a listen as well. Um, and those ones, I I tend to skip one out of every four or five just because they're not as relevant to the Australian market. Some are very US-centric, but really, really good worth listening to. Um, I'll throw a, a, a thought in for a Freakonomics podcast, the podcast from the book of the same name. Uh, Stephen Dubner does a great job there of just digging into some of the kind of hidden side of economics. I think they call it a hidden side of everything, I think they say in their, in their tagline. Um, they do a really good job of that. It's really well produced. Long, it's about 35, 40 minutes, but really interesting. Interview-based, generally speaking, on a single topic. That's very good. Um, I think I should, well, you've, you've mentioned David, so I'll mention uh, Chris Hill and the Motley Fool Money podcast. They are namesake in the US. Again, if you're interested in, they have a uh, some analysts talking about some US stocks and US news. If you're interested in the US market, that's very worthwhile. The other thing is they do an interview almost every week of someone else, whether they're an author or a speaker or something else. Um, that's just interesting for its own sake. Sometimes a book author, sometimes an expert on a particular industry. Uh, well worth a listen, see how you go. Uh, but more importantly, uh, our podcast. I think it's the best podcast I can think of. I have nothing to add to that. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> yeah, Listen to man. our podcast. Mate, the next one from Daniel. Daniel asked a really good question. He says, guys, love the podcast. Good man. Thank you, Daniel. I have two questions. Now, they're almost one question. Are you able to confirm the main ways Macquarie makes money? Macquarie Bank, of course, Macquarie Group, we should call it these days. And secondly, over a 10 to 15 year horizon, do you think Macquarie will provide better absolute returns than any of the <laughs> banks? Thanks, Daniel. You're not a, a bank guy. Do you like want to a, shot at this? This is like a hard question. It so, a, I mean, go on, it is a good one. So, Macquarie does a bunch of things, right? It, it does investment banking. Yes. It, um, it also has like investments in things like renewable energy and stuff like that. Yes. Um, so, it's a basically a diversified investment yep. cr- uh, group. Um, it's probably one of our best run banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably one of the few which have a lot of international presence, although they have recently actually uh, started winding down some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like Macquarie, actually. If, if somebody had to buy a bank, I'd actually say, well, I'm saying buy Westpac right now. Because, uh, <laughs> Would some... you buy Westpac or Macquarie first? Well, if I had to choose, no, Macquarie, no, Macquarie, because I think Macquarie is much higher quality. It's run by a yep. s- superb, like superb CEO. It has, it's really, yeah, really up there. Um, yeah, I think it's a definitely higher quality uh, by, by margin. I think it pays a decent dividend too, like four four okay. percent. Yeah, it's not not quite up with the other banks, but it's a very different business. It's a good a good dividend given the sort of business that it is. Yeah, uh, that, that's what I've got to say. I mean, yeah, I'd pick Macquarie over the other banks. Nice, um, Daniel. Just to confirm, to add to that, it's a recommendation of ours at Share Advisor. You can find Share Advisor at shareadvisor.com.au and feel free to sign up. Um, possibly happy me throwing a bit of a plug in there. Of course, you can always join Doc's Extreme Opportunities at fool.com.au forward slash extreme dash opportunities or just go to fool.com.au and sign up for Take Stock, which is our regular newsletter. And in there, you'll get all of our commentary. I, I do an email about twice a week and you'll also get all of our marketing material as well. So you've been warned, uh, but it also includes the best prices for some of our products and our services. So jump on there. You can find out more about Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities. That add over. Um, Daniel, look, yeah, it's a buy of ours at Share Advisor. It, it basically makes money a whole lot of different ways. Um, trading, uh, investment banking, uh, commodities, um, it, it invests in a whole lot of different types of assets in management and management of the assets and the assets themselves. Interestingly for Macquarie, look, here's my thing about Macquarie. It is genuinely accepted to be some of and probably the smartest single group of people in the country working in a 
in a business trying to make money for somebody else and for themselves, right? They call it the millionaire's factory for very good reason. For the longest time, I, I didn't think Macquarie was cheap enough to buy, but I've always said from day dot, I would never, ever bet against Macquarie. You've got thousands of very, very smart people who are hired because they're smart, hired because they're trying to find new ways of making money for themselves and making money for shareholders. And it's a reasonably entrepreneurial type operation because they're literally saying, hey, if you can find a way for us to make money as a business, bring it forward and we'll see what we can do with it. Now, when you've got that entrepreneurial talent, when you've got that drive and that shared, talk about incentives earlier in the program, think about the shared incentives there. These are people who are desperately trying to find ways of making themselves money and making money for shareholders. And that's a pretty good combination. So um, I, I I think absolutely to Doc's point, over 10 to 15 years, yeah, I'd be, I be I couldn't imagine a scenario where Macquarie isn't the best of the big banks, better than the other big four, just by virtue of its business. It's not constrained to the Australian market. It's not constrained to housing and business lending. I love that our businesses, our banks, sorry, are quite vanilla in their style because they're not taking stupid risks. They didn't get involved in the CDO collapses in the GFC. Um, they're pretty vanilla banks, which is fantastic from an economics um, security and stability perspective, but it also means they're not going to make the sorts of gains you can get by doing some other stuff. Macquarie are the, the best in breed, I think, on that one. So I'd, I absolutely think Macquarie is going to outperform the big four banks over any meaningful time horizon. Anything on that? I have nothing to add. Mate, we got a question from, well, so here's a question from Mitchell that came to us via email. Huh. Email. I know. That I didn't know that she existed. Uh, Mitchell says, hey, Scott and Doc, love the podcast. Good man. Thank you, Mitchell. He says in brackets, sorry, I'm not on the socials. So this is coming to you on old school email. We're cool with that, mate. Thank you. Here's what I love about this. My 14-year-old son, Ryan, and I love our weekly dose of foolish goodness and have used it to great effect. At the start of 2019, I nudged Ryan to start a small investment in the stock market. And we researched the companies suggested by you two in a podcast on your best guesses for the year. He chose the Vanguard VAS, which is the ASX 300, and is super pumped about the growth so far. He says, thanks to you both for the foolish insights. In brackets, we don't play favorites in my house. Mitchell, that's an absolute error. You know I'm the best. Uh, <laughs> he says, through the long-term listening, I'm starting to take a keener view of my own options. So here's my question. In my existing super, I have a Vanguard diversified high growth allocation that a financial advisor set up. This is part of a wholesale fund with a management fee of 0.29%. The Vanguard retail fund equivalent has a starting management cost of 0.9%, reducing to 0.6 and 0.29 as more funds are invested. However, there is an equivalent Vanguard ETF. So this is a listed market ETF as opposed to the managed fund he's investing in, which is done directly, that has a management fee of only 0.27%. My old super goals had always included being able to buy wholesale managed funds, but the high barrier to entry meant this is only typically possible when your super is part of a larger fund. This seems nonsensical these days, given I could just buy the equivalent exposure in an ETF directly. Do I have this correct or am I missing something more fundamental that, get, that I get by purchasing units in the equivalent retail wholesale fund? Do you get more if you pay more? I understand your advice is only general in nature, but for the same type of exposure, there would be significant benefit in moving the managed fund stake to the ETF, right? He said, not as good as hashtag get a better rate, but along the same sort of lines. Love it. Thank you, Mitchell. Additionally, given the availability of the equivalent ETF, why would anyone invest in a managed fund these days? Keep up the great work and fool on. Regards, Mitchell. Long question, mate, but a really, really important one. In the good old days, you had to send a check to your fund manager and they would give you units in the fund. And that was the only way you could do it. And they charged a pretty penny for the deal. These days, an ETF means you can buy or sell shares in many funds, the same as you would buy shares in... Oh, sorry, you buy shares, literally. You buy stock in a, in a particular company. In that sense, isn't an ETF the best way to go? Well, it seems to be. I mean, uh, if, they're, if they're exactly identical in the sense that they, the ETF is basically mimicking the fund, yep. then I, I don't see why you would pay extra. There's no reason to pay extra if there's no minimums on parcels, no minimum, no minimums on how much you can buy. Yep. It's liquid. You can buy and sell anytime you want. Yes. Uh, so, you know... I mean, assuming the bid ask spreads are not that wide, I think mm -hmm. this—you know—sometimes there's additional money being made on the bid ask spread. Yep, and the bid ask spread is the difference between the buy price and the sell price that are listed yeah. on the. When you look at your brokerage account, you'll see buy at a dollar fifty and sell at a dollar fifty-one. The difference between those two numbers is the bid ask spread. Yeah. So if there's if, yeah, I mean, I can see no reason why you wouldn't take the cheaper option. Do you see any? Is, there must be some reason, or there is no reason. It's just one of those weirdities. Mate, you're you're almost dead right. There is. Almost no reason to do it, so you're spot on. The only reason would be, Mitchell, in some circumstances, you are able to add to a managed fund at a cheaper rate than adding to an ETF. So for example, some managed funds will let you add, I'd pick a number, 100 bucks a month 
to the ETF, or so the managed fund, I should say, with no fee or no no brokerage fee, if you like, no transaction fee. So if you're going to put a hundred bucks a month into an account, um, that costs you nothing. If you're going to buy a hundred bucks worth of the shares on the market, it's going to cost you 10, 15, 20 bucks in brokerage. So that, I mean, that's obviously quite expensive as a proportion of your buy price uh, or your buy investment. So that that's that's a meaningful difference. That would be the only one I can think of, mate. So if you want to do small regular investments up to a certain value, it's worth having it as part of the managed fund. That being said, if you've got a meaningful amount in the fund itself, the amount you're, the amount extra you're paying in management fees is probably not going to cover the brokerage difference anyway. So at some level, you're probably better to do it that way. Generally speaking, I think the ETF is a far better option, much more liquid, much more available. You can see your investment there. You are also, by the way, slightly incentivized to trade it. So the other reason might be that out of sight, out of mind, if you're the sort of person who might feel like you want to make some changes too regularly, um, then having it separately in a managed fund off the market might be of, of value. So for, for those two reasons, the, the, the not looking at every day and also the fact that you don't have to pay brokerage on small incremental additions, that would make sense. We have one of our team who makes it regular additions to a managed fund off market for that reason. Uh, but generally speaking, if you can pool your investment assets and buy, maybe buy some shares in the ETF every two, three or four months, it's probably better off going with the ETF. Anything else, Doc? I have nothing to add to that. Beautiful. Next question came from Steve. Steve says, hi, guys. Love the weekly podcast and the endless banter. Steve, thank you. It's nice to know at least one of you do. He says, six years of study and a couple of years travel thrown in there meant I didn't start working full-time until the age of 30. Made half your luck. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I'm now 32 and have started investing over the last two years. Well done. My portfolio is made up of ETFs with the intention of adding some individual businesses in smaller portions if and when businesses of interest arise. Maybe Westpac, Doc, after today's podcast. Bye, Westpac. <laughs> I'm definitely quoting you on that. He says, my question relates to dollar cost averaging and the best time intervals to invest, given that bro sorry, given brokerage fees. Longer intervals with larger sums mean I lose less in transaction fees, but too long of an interval and I lose the averaging nature of the strategy. I'm with Comsec and look to invest two to $3,000 per year in addition to any dividends I receive. What time frame do you think would be best? Thanks for your thoughts and keep up the great work. Steve, what do you reckon, Doc? How frequently, a couple of grand a year, how frequently should Steve be putting that money to work and losing or otherwise the benefits of dollar cost averaging? You know, like, I mean, here, it's, it's a great question because you have to consider the brokerage cost, right? Yep. I mean, if you're investing, if he's he's with Comsec, so if he's investing $1,000 or less, he's paying 10 bucks, right? Uh, under 1,000. So if it's 1,000, it's unfortunately high, but yeah, under 1,000 bucks, 10 bucks a trade. Yes, under 1,000, 10 bucks a trade. So, I mean, it's still pretty high. It's 1%. Yep. Uh, but maybe it's manageable. I, I mean, I wouldn't trade uh, smaller than 1,000 in this case, just mm -hmm. because otherwise it just you, you're just eating up too much of the cost. Yep. Um, probably like, you know, I'd probably do it twice a year maybe is what I think seems reasonable. That's, that'd be my guess. Like if you've got three grand, you do, yeah. you, well, here's the problem. If you did 1500, you'd probably pay $20, right? Is that the problem? Correct. It, go, it goes <laughs> up. And in fact, if you do it, depending, yeah, I mean, Comsec, Comsec can be expensive. It can be up to $30 depending on how, Ouch, how your yeah. account is structured. Um, so what about, okay, so that, that makes sense. But what about the dollar cost averaging element? If he does it twice a year, is that, en is that frequently enough? For the benefit of dollar cost averaging? I think so. But I mean, you know, here's the thing, right? I mean, the dollar cost averaging, you could try to be optimistic, you know, opportunistic, right? If the market has pulled back, then you're doing it. But otherwise, you could just, you know, twice a year, if you do that over like 30 years, that's a lot. You know, you get a lot of, you get you get to play a lot of times, right? You get to, you know, swing a lot of times. Yeah. You, I mean, I mean that, that that's, I think that's, you know, but in this particular case, because just because of the thousand dollars limit, I would say maybe what you actually want to do is just go three times because you got thousand, thousand, yeah. thousand, and then you don't hit the, you know, uh, more than the thousand limit, and and then you have reduced overall your brokerage costs and you've gone three times. I mean, maybe that's... I, I reckon that is spot on the stack of the advice I would give. Dollar cost averaging is great, but you don't have to be too, uh, too over the top about it. You know, if you could invest, if you in a perfect world, if you could invest a small amount fortnightly, then you should do it, right? Because there's no reason not to. And if markets rise over time, the sooner you get money to the market, generally speaking, the better off you are. The reality is, as you've already said, Doc, we don't want you to pay more money, Mitchell, uh, sorry, Steve, uh, in brokerage than you have to. And so the reality is, you know, we want you to get into the market regularly at the lowest possible cost, notwithstanding the fact you don't want to give up too much gain in the meantime. If the market goes up 5% a year, then the reality is if, oh, sorry, 10% a year, the reality is if you wait every six months, that's 5% on average you're giving up, you're going to pay that pay less than that in brokerage. So you need to weigh those up. I, I agree, Doc. I reckon if I'm with Comsec, I'm going to say put 990 bucks to work every time you end up with it, uh, pay your 10 bucks brokerage, 
And don't worry too much about it. As, as Doc's already said, if you do it three times a year over 40 years, it's 120 different transactions. That I mean, that's, that is dollar cost averaging in itself, right? It's, it's tempting to think about it needs to be fortnightly or monthly. And in a perfect world, it might be. But I think to some degree, that would put the, the theory ahead of the practice completely fine to invest a couple of times, three times a year, when you have just under a thousand bucks with Comsec, as you say, um, for 10 bucks, that's a pretty good way to go about it. Any moment? I have nothing to add there. Beautiful. Let's move on. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Next question is from Curtis. Is Hi, Scott and Doc. I think it's one of my favorite openings so far. Just wanted to start off by saying you're doing the Lord's work. Now, I should say neither of us is ordained ministers. And I'm going to say that, you know, um, I don't want to underestimate the Lord's work. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love the praise, you know, Curtis, thank you very much, man. <laughs> but, I'm but, taking it. I'm taking it. I, I'm not going to take it. This, this, sounds too, <laughs> this sounds too risky, you know. I don't know who's going to come after me with pitchforks. Because, Nobody, because we're doing the Lord's work. But, but you know, somebody might say we are not. But yeah, I, it's, it's a, you know, thank you very thank much. You, I, I really appreciate it. Very nice. He says, I thoroughly enjoy the podcast each week, and I'm a member of Extreme Opportunities. There you go. Thank you again. As I said, fool.com.au forward slash extreme dash opportunities, or just go to fool.com.au and sign up for our Take Stock newsletter. He says, my question relates to reallocating your portfolio. A couple of weeks back, a listener wrote in who had done extremely well on Afterpay, and his portfolio is now 50% Afterpay. Doc mentioned the theory of resetting your portfolio each day, as in if you would not buy 50% in one company, then don't hold 50% in one company. I'm not sure if that was you or me. It might have been me, but if it was you, that's okay too. My question relates back to CGT or capital gains tax, as selling a company in the interest of doing a better job of diversifying may well trigger a CGT event, meaning you sell a thousand bucks of one company that has seen good growth, but due to tax implications, you can only now purchase 900 bucks of another company, which takes a big toll on compounding growth. I understand you can't offer tax advice, and that's absolutely true. However, would this be something both you gents would consider when reallocating a portfolio? Looking forward to hearing your foolish insights. Regards, Curtis. Doc, what say you, mate? Should we be a little more, yeah, a little, a little slower to sell, given the tax impost that's going to eat away at our reinvested cash? Mate, this is another hard question. Why do I get all the hard questions? <laughs> because I get to ask them, mate. Ah. That's exactly that's why you're here, dude. So I don't have to answer the hard questions. So, so Curtis, you're much smarter uh, than me. <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah. So this can't we can't give any personal advice. Yeah. If, but here's the thing. Like the, there are two aspects to it. You, you absolutely, I think it is true that one needs to think about. The portfolio, I mean, this, you know, I think we talked about this last time. You, know, you, you can think about buying the entire portfolio, at least theoretically, every day, yep. right? And ideally, your allocations reflect, um, you know, with, with a small margin here and there uh, of what you would want them to be today, right? Now, yep. you know, market is going to be exuberant. If market is exuberant about something and it's priced up a lot, then, you know, that actually is probably an indicator to sell. Now, that aside, I mean, you don't want to sell... Um, on every small movement because, you know, then you land up paying, you know, just doing a lot of transactions, paying the broker and basically making everybody else, uh, you know, a tax man happy and it's okay for the <laughs> exactly. tax man to be happy because they get a tax. <laughs> we but, like that, yes. But, uh, but, but it's better for you to be happy by not having, <laughs> by compounding that money and paying the tax later on in life. Very true. Um, you know, which is, uh, <laughs> which in, 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 in societal terms is actually good for everyone because, you know, then you're going to take care of yourself and you're not going to ask anything from the government. So that's great. Um, um, but, yeah, so I mean, one way to solve the problem is that if you're over-allocated to something, then you might want to sell a little bit. And uh, here the question might be is, are you okay with a certain allocation and are you able to tolerate the volatility that comes with having overweight positions? Yep. 50% to me sounds very large. I have actually personally never had 50% allocated to any company across uh, my portfolios. Now, another thing I'll point out is when I look at allocation, I don't... Like, you know, people might have multiple brokerage accounts. You might have some money here, some money there, and some money elsewhere. Yep. And, and it, it's often what happens is you look at one account, and then you see, oh, that's too you know, overweight. But yeah, I think you need to look at it, at least in my view, mm. across your entire you know, allocation of stocks, right? So if it's, if it's over-allocated, it's like 50%. 50% is really high. Um, you know, I do 12, 15. Maybe I can go up to 20. Um, it, on, on the other hand, I mean, you know, if in a classic example might be that, you know, you say had Netflix shares and you mm -hmm. bought them for, you know, a dollar and you decided to reallocate every time it went up, you know, 
um, by 5x or something. <laughs> that's, a, that's a world-class problem. Well, it's a world-class problem, but here's the real thing, right? I mean, you bought at $1 and you kept it at, at till 300 you have 300x, right? Mm. That one holding will actually help you retire. Yep. So, um, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so I think it, it's really hard. I think you need to do um, what works for you. What I can say what I do. What I, when a particular company becomes over it in my portfolio, I actually don't add any more funds to that particular company. So what I do is, you know, my my stream of investments that comes, my stream of dollars that I'm saving and I'm putting into my investments, I just don't put it into a company that I'm already overweight or right. I feel that I'm overweight. And that's a natural way of uh, reducing the weight on a company. But, you know, I'm letting it do its compounding. I'm just not adding any dollars to it. And, you know, uh, that naturally starts tapering off. Of course, if some company has done really, really well then you and, and you have a small number of holdings, then that doesn't work. You know, maybe the ideal thing there is to do some amount of diversifying away because, you know, if something is up like, you know, gazillion times, you feel great about it. But if the same thing drops by even like 30%, you'd feel really bad about it. So I think it need, you need to consider how your emotions are going to track with the volatility in the stock. I think that's kind of right. So, you know, the way I think about the question, Curtis, is, is really one of diversification, one of portfolio management, rather than rather the individual position itself. Now, if Afterpay is 50% of your portfolio and continues to go on to give you great returns, then fantastic. If and I shouldn't talk about Afterpay particularly because it then sounds like I'm talking about a particular company. So let's 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 separate the company from the from from the portfolio decision. Let's say it's Company X, just just to pick a new name. Company X is now 50% of your portfolio. The question for you really is: Do I really think on a portfolio level? Any company should be worth 50% of my portfolio. The answer is almost certainly no, because no matter how how right you think you are, we have diversification for the very good reason that we're not always going to be right. In fact, we're going to be wrong reasonably frequently. In fact, Peter Lynch, the great US fund manager, said, if you're good in this game, you would be right six times out of 10. So that's roughly half, right? A bit more than half. If you're wrong about that 50% company, if company X is either massively overvalued or simply has a stumble, or investors simply decide they don't want to pay that much for company X anymore, and those happened um, WiseTech quite recently. Business hasn't changed at all, but investors have decided to pay about 30% less for WiseTech in recent times. That's going to happen, right? And so the question for you is, do you really want to risk half your portfolio on the fact that people are going to keep paying a lot of money for company X, that performance is going to continue to be great for company X, that this, this is not going to be a mistake or there's no fraud or you haven't simply bought overvaluation or competition hurts its business. That's the reason we have diversification in the first place. So yes, you've got to pay tax. Frankly, nice problem to have, as Doc's already mentioned. If you've gone from 5% to 50% of your portfolio in company X, well, fantastic. Well done. Um, I just don't think on average across your lifetime of investing across the average portfolio, you want to risk your financial future on having to be completely right about one company in such an outsized proportion. I've been right about lots of companies. I've been wrong about lots of companies too. And if I'd have had the wrong companies as a 50% allocation, I'd have a lot less money now, even if I was trying to avoid the, the tax. I would have been better off selling and paying the tax, frankly. Um, RFG is a great example. We, we recommended an early price that went up to seven bucks. I was a genius for a while. Now, we did sell it at, I think it was over a buck when we sold it. It's now down to 20, 30 cents, something like that. Actually, less to about 10 cents now. Um, if we'd have held that the whole way through, well, avoiding the capital gains tax on a $7 sale felt would have felt expensive at the time, but it would have been cheap compared to a 10 cent share price now and the, the cost of that one. So, Yes, we're all tempted to think, hey, it's going up, it's going well, I don't want to pay the tax. Completely agree, Curtis, don't pay tax, you don't have to. Uh, pay all the tax you should, by the way. We don't recommend you uh, go too close to the line when it comes to the tax man. But yeah, just just be careful about whether or not you really want to take that risk on your portfolio. Sometimes you're better off paying the tax and doing okay, rather than potentially not paying the tax uh, and risking a larger proportion of your portfolio. If, you, if the stock falls 50%, you would have wished you'd paid 10 or 12% in tax on the way through. So um, that's why it's worth reallocating your portfolio. Just take advantage of diversification and not over-risk your portfolio if you don't need to. Hey, Doc. Yes, sir. I've got some good news. What's the great news? Ring the bell. Do, 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 We've got do, do, do. a mailbag extra episode coming this Sunday. Woo-hoo. Now, see, I say that. <laughs> I'm also mindful. Last week, we did have a couple of tech issues. If you're listening to this now, hopefully you're listening to this on a Friday afternoon. Uh, if it's like last week, it might be Monday. Uh, unfortunately, we had a bit of a bit of a, a bit of a mix up between the, the techies here at Triple M. Uh, and so the, the podcast didn't go up exactly when it should. So I'm, I'm loath to promise it. Well, it's definitely coming. Loath to promise when. But if you're listening to this on a Friday, there's every good chance we've got a big bumper mailbag extra episode coming to you this Sunday. 
We love my, good. We love Mailbag. We do love Mailbag. We're going to try and get through as many as we... Mate, we've got... So, I mean, it's a nice problem to have, right? Speaking of world-class problems, we've got lots and lots of Mailbag to get through. We'll do our level best to get through it on Sunday. We do value your time. We know you do too. And while we joke about having lots of podcasts, we hope that you're enjoying it. We, we do appreciate you listening to it as always. So thank you for doing so. I won't give the socials this time. I'll give the socials on Sunday's episode. So let me wrap this up. That does wrap us up. And so before we go, don't forget, you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. I imagine if you're a regular listener, you know what's coming next. Say it with me. And if you like what we're doing, give us a big five-star rating on iTunes. Leave us a review. Tell your friends. We're sure they could do with a little foolish straight talk too. And of course, don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash. Say it with us. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll see you on Sunday with another dose of special foolish mailbag insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.